Welcome back to SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. The SEC Media Days in Atlanta are rolling along. We've heard from several coaches, including the two guys who are in last year's national championship game, Nick Saban and defending champion Kirby Smart. John, I think it's interesting that despite the fact that that Alabama and Georgia played in the SEC championship last year, they played in the national championship, they're expected to have the top programs in the SEC this year. We've spent the last two months, folks in our line of work and college football fans in general, paying a whole lot of attention to the Nick Saban-Jimbo Fisher rivalry. Now, I know they traded barbs and, and uh, you know, Saban said Jimbo bought all the players on his team and then Jimbo fired back and said any number of things about uh, Nick Saban. So, yeah, that makes for a spicy rivalry. But to me, the real rivalry in the SEC that's going on right now, maybe it's not, it's not as bitter as, uh, as Jimbo versus Saban, but I think the real rivalry is Nick Saban versus Kirby Smart. And, and I think it's set up the, to be that way for the foreseeable future. What do you think? Well, Nick Saban said yesterday in an interview that how much he loves coaching still. That's not breaking news, but there's absolutely no indication that he plans to retire next year or the year after that or three years down the road. This is all he wants to do. So he's going to be there for a while. He may outlast Kirby. But I think Kirby enjoys what he's doing, too. He was an assistant under Nick for seven years or so, defensive coordinator. I think what's interesting about this rivalry now is that Kirby Smart is finally getting full credit. In 2017, these two teams played for the national championship. Same two coaches. And, and Kirby was one incredible play away from winning that game and being a national championship coach. But until he actually won a championship, he was still kind of a eh, Nick Saban disciple. He, he was a part of the Saban coaching tree. And I think I think he would have gotten more credit as a head coach if he hadn't been a part of the Nick Saban coaching tree. They would have just done this and say he'd have been an assistant coach at uh, uh, Arkansas or Tennessee or anywhere else, but he comes over and has this kind of success. But now when you look at what they did against the Bulldogs, did against Alabama in the championship game, these guys are, are right there. Certainly Kirby hadn't accomplished what Nick Saban has, but right now those are the guys. And I don't think just in the SEC, nationally as well. And I think you made a, a good point when we were talking in, in preparation for this podcast, John. You, you said uh, not only did Kirby win a national championship, which changes his reputation, but he beat Alabama in the national championship. And I, I think that was so important because, you know, if if Georgia, let's say Alabama has a down year by its standards last year, which maybe you could say not winning the national championship is a, is a down year by Alabama's standards, but um, but no, I mean, Alabama still won in the SEC. They still made the college football playoff. And then Georgia gained some revenge. They won the rematch in the national championship. And, and yes, we can have all this debate about 
well, what would have happened had John Mechie not been hurt? What would have happened had Jamison Williams not been got, gotten hurt in that game? And it, and it may have changed the outcome. But the bottom line is Georgia got another shot at Alabama. They beat them in the national championship. And I think, as we were discussing beforehand here, that is that is important, is that there's no caveat. There's no asterisk of, well, yeah, Kirby won a championship, but he didn't have to go through Bama to get there. No, he did have to go through Bama. And although he didn't beat him the first time, and although some Alabama injuries helped his cause the second time, say what you will, Georgia beat Alabama. And, and so I think that sort of, um, that removes any doubt to me from what Kirby Smart is is building at, at Georgia. And I think it removes any lingering doubt that a lot of people had. He He built a juggernaut last year, particularly on defense, and it was good enough to beat Alabama one out of two times. And so... Yeah, they're here to stay. And it's just interesting to me that this is the rivalry we're not talking about. We're still talking about Nick and Jimbo. Do you think it's it's as simple as there seems to be a lot of respect between Nick Saban and Kirby Smart and, and the rivalries that get the most play, especially like head-to-head coaching rivalries, are the ones where there's some bitter feelings involved? Because otherwise, I I, I really just can't understand why we're not hearing more conversation about how Saban and Jimbo is set up to be, you know, college football's biggest rivalry for the next five years. Well, I think it goes back a year year ago when uh, when Jimbo popped off, and there are a lot of things said in these booster gatherings. There's a different tone to those, and he say we're going to kick Nick Saban's butt. Only he didn't say butt. He he just fans love that kind of stuff. They love for their coach is going to stand up and say, we're not afraid of Nick Saban. Kirby Smart never really said anything like that about Nick Saban. He's never really said, yeah, we're, we're going to show Alabama. We're not, you know, we're, we're not playing second fiddle to Alabama. We're as good as any program in the country. He's never, he said, he's never said that. I think he's, and he's not overly respectful of what Alabama's accomplishment. You can do that too. And it doesn't set well with your fan base. We don't want to hear about Alabama. I think most people don't want to hear about Alabama, especially from their head coach. And I think I think Kirby's handled that very well. And so now he's perceived kind of like he just happens to be in the same conference as Alabama, but you, you look over there at Clemson. Dabo Sweeney is he's perceived differently because he beat Alabama for national championships than if he'd beaten Notre Dame, Oklahoma, or Ohio State. He just did. He took that Alabama dynasty head-on and beat it twice in championship games. And not even Kirby's done that. Came very close. To me, they're kind of on the, on the same level for what they've done. But it gives you, it gives you so much more clout when you said, yeah, you won a national title and you did it by beating Alabama at the top of its game. The other thing that we're starting to see now, and and Alabama really had the corner on this market, was Alabama year after year could pump out 8 to 12 guys into the NFL draft, you know, have just these sweeping losses, and there they'd be in the next year, you know, back in the playoff again. Maybe they wouldn't go back-to-back in winning national championships. You might see a situation like we saw from 2020 to 2021, whereas, you know, Alabama lost all that star talent off its probably its best team ever that, that 
that ran the table in 2020. And yes, it did take a small step back last season, but it still was a national runner-up. It still won the the SEC. And that was something that Alabama did and really nobody else was doing. Other programs might rise up and have their, their day in the sun, but then they'd lose a bunch of guys to the draft and they'd, they'd drop off maybe for a year or two. But I think we're starting to see now Georgia get to that point. It's it's maybe not quite yet to Alabama level. I think they could hammer that home by getting back to the playoff this year. But I think we're getting to the point where Georgia's right alongside Alabama there, where it's like, no matter how much they lose in the draft next year, because of how well they recruit and how well they're, they're building their program in a player development way under Kirby Smart, you just don't expect them to have that much drop off from, from one year to the next. And I think that's why we see you know, despite everything Georgia lost in the NFL draft, I mean, pumped out by some measurements, the best draft class ever, just in terms of sheer volume, especially. And yet almost every playoff projection you see, I think if you and I were to sit here and do preseason playoff projections, they include Alabama and Georgia getting back to the playoff. You know, it's like it, everybody just, it's like, ah, it doesn't matter. They lost 15 guys of the draft, whatever. They've been recruiting well, Georgia will be back in the playoff. And that's a, that's a very Alabama-like position to be in. You lose all these guys, who cares? You're going back to the playoff next year. It's really rare, Blake. Um, when you think about it, uh, I think Ohio State, though it hasn't won a national championship under Ryan Day, you kind of expect it to win the Big Ten, no matter whom it lost. You you just know it's really good. And I think Clemson, um, last year Clemson, did not have a horrible year. It went, it won 10 games. I think it was 10 and three, but you would have thought it just fell off the face of the earth because you're, they're expected to be so good. Oklahoma under Lincoln Riley was kind of that way, but there just aren't that many programs that you view through that lens and say, they'll be just as good. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who they lost. They have the program. They have the coach. They'll just keep winning. And I think Kirby will be able to do that. I think it was interesting. This is sort of a, uh, to take one player as an example, much of Georgia's success last year, of course, was about its defense. And the biggest guy on that defense in physical stature was Jordan Davis. 6'6", 360, moved well, is in first round draft pick. But a lot of people thought Jalen Carter the other massive defensive lineman up front was was a better player. I thought he did. I watched all of George's games. Uh, I thought he was. So that gives you an idea of the kind of talent. And that's just one player. But you've, you've got guys like that. You talk about linebackers. Uh, George has had so many good linebackers recently. I, I've read about a guy now that should be a first-time starter named, I think it's uh, – uh, Jamar Dumas Johnson, and he's expected to be a big time player. He just hasn't done it yet. And that's what we see with Alabama. We see guys that they were backups and we see them come in these players that come in and they, they'll catch your eye sometimes in the fourth quarter of a blowout game. And you, you'll kind of make a mental note. Yeah, I can see that guy in a year or two. He'll be the main man. And, and that's what it takes to have these kind of programs. What's interesting, John, is, and I, I agree with you, I thought, you know, for all the, the love that, that Jordan Davis got last year, and he did he did have a, a fine season, but I, I thought Jalen Carter, 
you know, if I could only choose one, I probably would have taken Jalen Carter. And then you take that one step further, and the number one draft pick this past spring, Jacksonville Jaguars take Trayvon Walker from Georgia's defensive line, number one overall. So a guy that, you know, maybe wouldn't even have been in our conversation of of top double guys. It, it just showed you, like, how truly deep they were as a unit. And as you say, that's that's something you could always say when you looked at that program on the other side and the other division was it wasn't just one guy or a couple superstars. It was up and down the roster, really up and down the two deep, not just the starting lineup of, man, these guys are loaded with NFL talent. I cracked the door, John, into saying we'd probably both project Alabama and Georgia into the playoffs. I'm going to shove that door open here and see if I can pin you down with a projection. I know you don't like to be sometimes forced into making predictions here, so I, I hope you're you're comfortable in this, this space. You don't like it when I try to pin you down and put you on a timeline on something. But I was asked recently, it was phrased in, a, in an interesting way. The question to me was, okay, if Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State make the playoffs, who's the fourth team? And I thought it was interesting phrasing because the person who asked me just assumed that I would say Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State would make the playoff, which is correct. They correctly assumed that. I would say that those teams are going to make the playoff this year. And I actually struggled to kind of come up with a fourth team because I'd never, I hadn't at that point sat down and done my playoff projections. I ultimately landed on Clemson just sort of by process of elimination. Clemson brings a lot of starters back. I think they're going to be better than they were last year. I don't know what they're going to do at quarterback. That's the, the lingering question, whether uh, whether DJU is is going to be an improved product Not this year. Nice. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Are they going to have to turn to the five-star freshman? But just by process of elimination, I sort of landed on Clemson. But, you know, I think Oklahoma is going to be a bit down this year by their standards. I don't know if the Big Ten can get into I mean, Pac-12. We, I almost they're an afterthought in the playoff conversation now. So who, who's your four team playoff? If mine is Alabama, Georgia, Ohio state and Clemson, do you match that? Do you throw somebody else in there? Oh, those top three, I I don't see how you can, when you're making a prediction, I mean, those are the most solid choices. You're placing a bet on it. Ohio state, Alabama, and Georgia. You just, we've talked about it because of the consistency of their programs. Ohio State even changed coaches, and it didn't make much of a difference. It went from Urban Meyer and maybe a little difference because Ryan Day hasn't actually won a national title. Um, I don't know if the Pac-12 is an afterthought with me. I think there are two there are two teams in the Pac-12, I think, capable of making the playoff. One is Utah. I know we don't think of Utah as a playoff-type program, but it's really good, and it went toe-to-toe with Ohio State in the Rose Bowl. It's got a huge number of players back. It almost looks more like an SEC team in some respects, really a physical team. And the other one is Southern California. Is Lincoln Riley, what he did at Oklahoma, and he's taking his quarterback with him to Southern Cal, a bunch of other transfers. He did good. He did well right away at Oklahoma, and so I – I'm not afraid to show Southern Cal some love. I think Southern Cal always has a lot of good players. They just don't get the best out of them a lot of times. So 
I would go with that. And uh, Clemson, yeah, if I was adding another team, I'd probably put Clemson in there. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else you would mention? See, I just I don't know if I could throw someone out there from the Big Twelve because I think Baylor Baylor lost a lot. I, I think they're going to take a little step back. Still be good, but I, I don't know if that they're going to be playoff worthy. Same with Oklahoma State, and then Oklahoma. I just think is by by Oklahoma standards, it's going to be down a little bit. So I don't know that I don't know. There's a team I feel comfortable throwing out there from the Big Twelve. I think NC State's a a trendy sleeper pick, but to me, they're they're going to be maybe in that uh, in that Pittsburgh position this year, where they're kind of a nice story, maybe win like nine games, but just be they're they're on the outside looking in of the playoffs. And I, I think you mentioned a couple interesting ones there. I'm particularly, I think Utah that that piques my interest because you're right, they they are pretty well stocked, and then also I think it's important they have a showcase game right off the bat in the swamp. And I know, to me, it's a great opportunity because you you get the credit for beating the Florida name and winning in the swamp if they can if they can win that game. But really, I mean, you're playing Florida at the right time. Florida's not a, a typical Florida team, at least what we've become accustomed to here in the last few decades. You know what we consider typical Florida teams. Billy Napier, you know, I think. Is, is he has a rebuilding challenge there, and I don't think it's going to be assembled in year one in the way maybe it will be for Brian Kelly. I think Brian Kelly will be ahead of the game at LSU. I think he inherited a better situation. I think he's done a little bit more in the transfer portal. So I do think Utah, if they can win that opener in the swamp, again, that's going to be something that hangs around on their resume and looks like a really good win, even if Florida goes like seven and five this year, six and six, winning. Beating an SEC team in an opener on the road, that's going to be something that I think gets you in that that early playoff conversation. You know, when these rankings initially come out in like late October or whatever it is, I think that, uh, you know, if you're sitting there undefeated with a road win at the Swamp, that, that really gives you some cachet. Yeah, I can't really get too hyped up about uh, NC State. It's just never, it's never done that before. And they, and they uh, lost to Mississippi State last year. That's the thing. You know, you see NC State on these dark horse lists for playoff teams, and, and they do bring a really, really good quarterback back, Devin Leary. You know, he threw for over 3,000 yards, 35 touchdowns last year. He's he's very, very good. But I, I can't get past, like, in week two last season, they got beat with authority by uh, a Mississippi State team that was that was fine, but... You know, if you're losing to Mississippi State one year, I can't see you making the playoff the next. So they're they're off my list. I I really think the Utah Florida game is so intriguing to me because of the high hopes for Utah, and then also Billy Napier coaching his first game. The Swamp will probably be at the top of its game, but what really could be a factor of that is the heat coming from going from Utah to some Florida heat and humidity. I could actually see Utah losing that game. I mean, I don't think it will, but if it did, it, it's capable of going 11 and one. It could win the rest of its games. And then that could become an aberration because I don't think Florida is going to have a great season, but it could in an upset type situation could win that. So that to me is just a really interesting game. 
Before we change gears, I'd like to take this time for thanking you for listening to SEC Football Unfiltered. We've been with you for a little over a year now, and the, the podcast is growing in popularity, and that's uh, largely thanks to you, the listener. So uh, we appreciate you listening, and uh, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and click uh, su- subscribe or follow. Or uh, if you like what you hear, give us a rating and review those ratings and reviews help us get in front of more listeners. John, I want to change gears to the NIL space, and boy, it's it's really getting exhausting at this point. I'm gonna to have to muster up some energy for some NIL debate because it feels like it's played out, and yet here we are a year into this thing, and we're still hearing conference commissioners and coaches grumble a little bit and sort of look to the the heavens for some sort of answer from the football deities or more specifically their elected lawmakers, some sort of solution to what they consider to be an NIL problem where I still fail to see who exactly is harmed by this. But we heard it from Greg Sankey on Monday. We heard it from ACC Commissioner Jim Phillips later in the week at the ACC Media Days. They are still hoping that there's going to be a federal solution to NIL. They think maybe in some time in the future, Congress can put their heads together and uh, create some federal legislation that will help govern this NIL space. Now, maybe, look, I'm not a political insider, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing something here, but uh, I do casually follow politics, and I just have a hard time seeing that uh, Washington is going to provide a bailout uh, to these these college leaders who think they need a solution to what they see as an NIL problem. And I'm, I'm pretty exhausted by this point of hearing hearing guys that are getting paid the town of money that Greg Sankey and Jim Phillips are being paid saying, you know what we need? We need our lawmakers in Washington to, to come bail us out with a solution to what really, frankly, is a problem that it is not harming any individuals right now. Yeah. Don't ask us to solve our problems. Come on. We don't get paid enough for that. We're just making millions of dollars. Yeah, and the other side of that is uh, I would really prefer that our governmental leaders are maybe focused on something like national health care or trying to prevent China from stealing our technology. Uh, I don't know. Call me crazy, but I just think that's a little more important than stopping than preventing a booster from paying a high school football player a lot of money. Uh, But the word we're hearing a lot now, real popular buzzword, all these coaches have espoused this, is guardrails. That's the key word now. That NIL, they all say, yeah, NIL's great, but we need some guardrails. I don't like the idea of guardrails. I don't want a guardrail on my column, do you want a guardrail on your column? It's no. certainly not on this par- podcast. No, and I'm proud to say we pod- have very few guardrails no, we have on this none. podcast. We got unfiltered in the name, so unfiltered and unguarded. I, I like that. <laughs> Maybe we should change the name. Yeah, it's 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 really getting exhausting at this point, and we, we heap some praise upon Kirby Smart and the program that he's building in the in the first segment here. So. I have no problem pivoting to some criticism now because these are recent comments that uh, Kirby made at a gathering of Texas high school coaches. And uh, this was reported on 
by ESPN. Kirby's joined the long list of coaches grumbling about NIL. And like you said, he adds the caveat of like, well, I'm I'm an advocate for NIL, but... And then he goes on to say, and, and again, these quotes are are coming from what Kirby said in front of a gathering of Texas high school football coaches, as reported on by ESPN. Quote, what I can't accept is some young man getting $10,000 a month for four years or three years of college. That's $120,000 a year. What do you think he's going to do with that? Is that actually going to make him successful in life? Because I promise you, if you handed me $10,000 my freshman year of college, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. And I just, I I think this is so, in a way, disrespectful. It's shirking of responsibilities. This this idea that like, if you hand college kids money, they're not going to know what to do with it. They're going to flush it down the drain. They're going to spend it on something stupid. And it's like, well, you work. You're employed by the college, Kirby. Like you and others around you, your job is to educate these young people and help turn them into responsible adults. You can't abdicate your responsibilities and say like, well, we just we can't be giving money to young people. They're not going to know what to do with it. I also think this is bogus anyway. Like, I know th- there's people out there in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, John, that do stupid things with money. You know, there's people out there that are wondering what happened to all their money because they invested in cryptocurrency uh, and that crashed. And like, well, wh- where's where's all my where's all my crypto money? That's gone. Sorry. So the idea that, you know, 20 year olds are the only people that are bad with money is is a farce. And there would be a, I'm sure there are a lot of college athletes that are going to do stupid things with money. But you know what? That's their prerogative. And there's going to be other college athletes that do smart things with money. But that's sort of the that's sort of the world we live in here in America, right? Is you get paid what someone tells you you're worth and then you can spend that money on whatever the heck you want. And if you want to do it on smart things, great. If you want to spend it on foolish things, that's your prerogative. Well, there's uh, there's no age limit on lottery winners. And there have been books written about uh, former lottery win- winners who have become impoverished. So I don't think we can say, yeah, you, most people might be able to manage money better at an older age, but you just... You can't assume that. You would like to think that these young guys, it would they would have some parental help. They would have friends or family that could advise them on this. But uh, the other thing that's that's interesting, aside from guardrails and the the idea of a young person getting money so so early in his life and the the dangers of that. Another thing that's coming up, uh, we hear a lot about. We hear about well, you need a salary cap. Uh, Lane Kiffin talked about that, that as though that would be a panacea for this. You just put a salary cap on how much you can spend in NIL money. Well, (laughs) there's no salary cap on coaches' salaries. There's no salary cap on what conference commissioners can make. I mean, that, that again underscores the hypocrisy that we've seen develop in college sports where universities and coaches make millions and millions of dollars, but yeah, these athletes don't need any that. They wouldn't know what to do with it anyway, if they got it, as you pointed out facetiously. So yeah, it's just a real, it's kind of a double standard. Uh, and, and you mentioned this in our preparation too, about, 
uh, when guys get, you know, you, you don't know what people are going to do with their money, uh, before once they get it, there's no way to predict for sure what will happen with that. So, and coaches get, they get guaranteed contracts when they've never even been a head coach. Uh, that's a great point you made. So, well, and and that's the other thing Kirby said was he said like he'd be more comfortable with these guys getting money after they've proven themselves. Well, that's that's a nice thought. I can I can appreciate that. But it's as you said, like that that standard doesn't apply to coaches. These coaches get contracts before many times before we know whether they're any good as a as a head football coach or not, and they're protected by buyouts. So if they stink. Yeah, they'll get fired, but they'll get millions of dollars in buyouts. So that that same standard does not apply to the coaches. And when it comes down to the salary cap, I think that's a nice idea. But the one big problem with that idea is you're not paying these guys salaries. You can't have a salary cap without salaries. That's the one convenient thing that's forgotten in all this. The schools are not paying athletes salaries. These athletes are not employees with school wages. This NIL money is money from third-party boosters. The schools aren't paying them. They're not employees. There's no salaries. So I don't see how you can set a salary cap when the money's not even yours if you're the school. It's the boosters' money. I don't know how you're going to cap what they spend. <laughs> and they're not salaries anyway. They're not wages. They're not employees. That's Yes, the NFL can have a salary cap because they're employees and there's collective bargaining. And during collective bargaining, you can you can address those things. You don't have that in college sports because these guys aren't employees. They're getting paid by boosters, and that's the way the schools wanted it. They didn't want to make these guys employees. They left it up to the boosters to handle this, and now they're complaining about the situation they find themselves in. It's like, well, you know what? If you don't want to find yourself in this situation, maybe you shouldn't have uh, rolled out the uh, the welcome mat for it. And I know their hand was forced by the Supreme Court. That's the only reason any of this really is happening is because – the NCAA had to admit defeat, and they couldn't stop NIL. But it's like the schools, they could have made these these athletes employees and paid them wages and set salary caps, but no, they didn't want to do that. So you leave it up to the boosters. Well, boosters can pay what they want as they build their roster. Well, it, it, you have to remember that sports are a potential-driven business. Um, we You draft players based on their potential in all the pro sports. They're willing to give players a ridiculous amount of money, even though the players haven't proved themselves at the next level. And you still do the same thing in a way, though not with the money necessarily. Now, now we're seeing a little doubt with NIL. But for the most part, we've seen in the past where, where an entire coaching staff will show up in a recruit's living room in a desperate attempt to get him to commit. But he hasn't done this at the college level. He hasn't proved himself at that level. So why are you willing to put that much focus and that much emphasis on acquiring his talent because of his potential? And so to me, again, it's hypocritical to say, well, you can't give that guy money because he hasn't proved himself. Yeah. And I just hate this idea of, you know, we just assume that a 20 year old wouldn't know what to do with thousands of dollars. Well, that might be true, but to me, the solution to that is we just don't pay them. The solution is educate them on what to do with the money. That's part of the college experience, right? Becoming an adult, providing education about real-world situations. And part of that is how to manage money. So 
you know, I'd have a much more appreciation if Kirby Smart said, you know what, I don't think these kids know what to do with the money that they're getting, but we're going to provide the best education at Georgia, and they're going to be the best money managers you can find. Our athletes will graduate college. No one better how to manage their money than anybody else in America. Instead, he says, they're not going to know what to do with this money because you know why? I didn't know what to do with this money when I was that age. Like, sorry, but it's it's your job to educate college students. Uh, and if not you, then other people around you at the university uh, for which you work. It's it's a lousy excuse. It's a lazy excuse. Um, and, and to me, it if there is an actual problem about college students now having more money than they know what to do with, the answer is to teach them what to do with, not try to dial back uh, the money and, and tell third-party individuals in a capitalistic nation how to spend their money. Well, and, and I don't think to, Ker, I don't think Kirby's telling the truth there. He has a business degree from Georgia, and Georgia has an outstanding business school. I bet he did know what to do with the money, but it sounds better to say what he said. But even though he was a college student, he was educated in how to handle money by the Georgia acclaimed Georgia Business School. Uh, but not everybody has that. I mean, what do you do with your money? Well, you go out and buy three cars, for starters, and maybe buy a parent's uh, new house. Isn't that what NFL first-round draft picks do? But who cares? It's it's their money. And you can get a res you can get a nice resale on those cars sometimes. Yeah, and at the end of the day, I think what's at the heart of all this, John, is that college football coaches are used to being omnipotent. They control everyone and everything around them, and now all of a sudden, these rich boosters—they're—they're they're wheeling and dealing. They're unchecked. They can—they can broker deals that maybe the old—the old ball coach maybe doesn't like. And it's eating away at some coaching omnipotence. And I think that is what is at the heart of this This matter, is that coaches have lost a little bit of control, a little bit of power, and it's not so much the money management skills of, of 20-year-olds. I want to change gears, John, and get into, into one more topic, because we also heard from, uh, well, we've heard from several other coaches, but I know you were interested by Sam Pittman. And uh, as we've discussed on this this pod before Arkansas's at the top of the list of my SEC dark horse teams for this season. And Sam Pittman's hogs are flying high right now. As hard as it's thinking about to think about pigs flying, they're, they're soaring in Arkansas land at the moment. Um, what'd you think about what you heard from, from Pittman as he forecasted this season? And, and I know he also said, <laughs> I thought this was a good line. Why did you hand out rings for the Outback Bowl? Because I wanted to. <laughs> and that's a great way to play that off because, you know, normally coaches get criticized for, for handing out rings to these, you know, run-of-the-mill bowl games. But uh, you know, I thought that was a, a, an interesting way to spin that. And for a program that had been so lousy under Chad Morris before Pittman got there, you know what? A win in the Outback Bowl, that is, that is plenty to celebrate. I, I would agree with that. Uh, Sam Pittman in these settings really comes across as likable. And perhaps that uh, has much to do with his recruiting success. Uh, we saw, he got another question today when he was in the media room. His question was, has Arkansas football arrived? And he just kind of laughed at that. 
arrive. No, we're underdogs. I mean, we're, you know, we're fighting and scratching and clawing and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, on the other hand, while you're fighting and scratching and, and doing all this stuff, you're trying to get better, but there's nothing wrong with celebrating what you do accomplish. You don't want your ultimate goal to be winning that bowl game and getting rings. You'd like to win a championship, sure, but there's nothing wrong with, with celebrating what you do accomplish, and then and then you move on and start pointing toward the next season. But I, I think it's important for players to enjoy what success they have. And he comes across as a coach I think a lot of players would like to play for. There's just a, I don't know, it's just a really kind of down-to-earth guy uh, with a with a good perspective on things. And I, I, I enjoyed his comments and how – just the way he he talked about his program and what he was trying to do. Again, it's fine to give out rings if you want to. It's his program. And I don't think anybody in the program said, I don't think any of the players said, oh, man, we don't want rings for winning that bowl game beating Penn State. What does that matter? Well, but do you think they'd be able to responsibly manage having a piece of jewelry like that, John? I mean, a 20-year-old, I mean, how can we responsibly expect them to – to handle having a nice ring. Well, he got he's got to sell it. <laughs> he's got to rush down to the pawn shop, doesn't he? Or get on the internet and sell that thing. See what see how he can manage that newfound uh, wealth. You know, one of the things Sam Pittman said that I, I appreciated, John. A lot of people in his position, when they hear about the idea of the nine game conference schedule would be saying, nah, I don't know about that. You know, we're, we're a program that's still building. We're still on our way up. And, you know, these programs that don't have a long history of SEC championships, I think they're squeamish about the idea of going to a not possibly, it's not approved yet, but one of the, one of the models under debate is a nine-game SEC schedule after Texas and Oklahoma join. And, of course, the SEC plays an eight-game conference schedule now and has for years. And under this nine-game format, you would have three designated rivals that you play every year and then six other opponents that rotate every year. But you just know there are plenty of coaches, maybe not publicly, but quietly out there saying like, first of all, I don't know about going to nine conference games instead of eight. And second of all, if we do, I hope we can get the three easiest permanent rivals possible. Well, not Sam Pittman. He was asked about that today and he said he thought it'd be pretty cool if Arkansas played as three permanent rivals in a nine-game conference schedule, if they would play Texas, Oklahoma, and Missouri every year. Now, I know you know you could say, like, well, maybe that's not so bad. He gets out of playing teams like Alabama and Georgia every year. But I still say there's not a lot of coaches in his position that would stand up and say, you know what, go ahead and give me Texas and Oklahoma every year. But I think Pittman, and I, and I sat down with him earlier this summer, and he made a great point about this. He said, you know, at some point you have to realize fans are the ones buying the tickets, so let's give them games they actually want to watch. And he was talking about rivalries and, and you know, playing those rivalry games, even if they're tough games. And I, I give him a lot of credit for that. Um, and I do think those would be good games for Arkansas every year as, as having those as their rivals. You play Texas, Oklahoma, and and uh, and Missouri, he he likes that idea. I give him I give him credit for for that. 
Yeah, and I give him credit for he he's not building up excuses. Arkansas has a really challenging non-conference schedule. Too challenging, I think. And he joked about it. He was asked about it. He joked about it, but he didn't really belabor it. And I've seen coaches who would be in tears over the idea of playing that tough a non-conference schedule when you're already playing in the SEC West, the, the most difficult division in the country. He doesn't do that. And I think what's important, and it, it also goes back to what you're saying about he welcomes playing Texas and Oklahoma, two prominent programs for many years. Texas has been down somewhat recently, but Oklahoma's still flying high. He's not making excuses. He's telling his players, his pro, his fans, everybody, we can play. We get this program where we want it to be. We'll play with anybody. And I think that's a really strong message to send because you're going to have to play in the SEC West anyway. You're going to have a, a difficult schedule no matter what, and there's nothing he can do about that non-conference schedule now. So he's not belaboring the point. He's again relying on we want to be we want our program built on physicality and toughness. And if you build it on toughness, you don't worry about the who the po- opponent is. You're not going to say, well, we can't play that tough a schedule. Yeah, we're tough enough. We can do it. So I think that's an important message to send. All right, John, we will leave it there and pick it up back next week. And and I hope you get rewarded, John, for doing two episodes this week instead of one. We, We doubled up. I hope you get a little extra money. And I hope you manage that money well. At your ripe old age. I, I, you've had plenty of time to learn how to manage money, right? Well, I tell you what, when I sold that 20 year old Honda, I put that money in the bank. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the kind of money management that only comes with age, wisdom, and experience. We hope you gained a little listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered. <laughs>